I want to welcome you again this morning. Really excited to be able to be here. I want to also welcome our Gerald campus today uh, by live stream, and and uh, always blessed to have them uh, as a as a great part. Of, of our church. And so uh, I do want to ask you to turn with me, if you would, this morning in your Bibles to the book of James. James chapter 3, we're going to begin reading in verse 1. Matter of fact, we're going to read here in a short time all together, James chapter 3, verses 1 through 12. If you have your copy of God's Word, I want to encourage you to open it, follow along, take some notes, but, uh, but otherwise it will be on the screen as well. So again, James chapter 3, verses 1 through 12. We're doing a 10-week summer series, and Pastor Roger came to Brett and Brad and I and asked if we would jump in and tag team this over the summertime, and it's been a great honor to do this. We're on week six this week. The series is called A Faith That Works, uh, A Faith That Works, Godly Faith in Everyday Life. How does this thing called faith really unfold in everyday life uh, today? So God wrote the book of James through James. James is the human instrument. God is the author. James uh, is written to the Christians, to the Christians of that day. But that means because this is a timeless book for Christians, for followers of Jesus today as well. And today's subject is the tongue. Okay, I'm going great. I drew the short straw, I guess, all right? So we're going to talk about the tongue today. I've told several people I've really been behaving myself the last couple of weeks just so I could preach this. But I'm going to let it rip this afternoon, just let you all know. So no, I hope not. But anyhow, uh, I do know this. In a moment, whenever we read this together, I want you to notice a few things. Really hang on to verse by verse because I'm going to come back and reference some of these verses. We won't read them all again. But in the very first part, something we're really not discussing today because of the time, it does say that for those who teach, we're really held doubly accountable. We need to be cautious. And, and uh, they're not just talking about pastors there. That's great Sunday school teachers and deacons and leadership. And really any believer that goes and shares their faith with someone, a lost friend, family member, whoever it may be. So we're all to a degree on the hook there. But I believe also for those that are teaching consistently, we need to be careful of, of what we say. We need to be cautious with our tongue. Then it goes on to all believers in verse 2 whenever it kind of gives us a little bit of a caveat, just a, a little bit of a way of not being completely on the hook, but I want you to hear the balance here. The Bible says, we're going to read it in a moment, you'll see that, and, and, and really uh, notice that as we're reading, that no man can control his tongue. No woman can control her tongue. That would take a perfect person, and there are no perfect people, so we're never going to be 100% at this thing. But then he spends the rest of the time talking about how we should still submit and follow. So whenever we read verse 2, it's not a pass. We don't get a pass on it. It's not a buy to the second round. We are responsible to control our tongues by the strength of God. We're going to see that hopefully as this, as this uh, text uh, unfolds this morning. Let's pray together. Father, again, we just pause for a moment. And God, uh, I said it in the early service and I'll say it again. I hope that I don't say this so often that it seems like it's cliche. You know, my heart, uh, God, we pause to pray at this point. Not because it's what we preachers are trained to do. It's because we need to pause and say, man, God... We desperately need you to teach us through the power of the Holy Spirit that lives in us to move us. Not a motivational speech this morning. Uh, God, we need you. God, we need this morning that we would leave this place applying what we learn. That we'd be doers of your word. God, we're thankful that you're more concerned about that than even we are. And we get to study from this inerrant, infallible book, your Bible. So, God, truth will be declared. Your word never returns void. You desire for us to live it. So, God, help us to follow you. Help me to follow you. Lord, we love you. We thank you. And we ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen. 
Well, here we go. Uh, James chapter 3. So James spends a lot of time talking about the strength of the tongue. As a matter of fact, he mentions several different analogies we'll talk about here in a moment. But the tongue, without a doubt, is strong. It's the most uncontrolled, strongest muscle in our body. There's not even a close second, I will promise you. Let me give you a couple of examples, okay? Uh, whenever Isaiah, our oldest, he's 23 now, whenever he was four, he already had two younger siblings. As a matter of fact, whenever he was four, I, Michaela was already here, and Noah, or Josiah rather, was a newborn. All of our kids have been the type of kids for some reason that whenever they got to the age of talking, they would just talk and talk and talk and talk and talk, follow us around the house going on and on and on and on with these long detailed stories. They get it all from their mom, right? So anyhow, they've just always been big talkers, right? So I will promise you whenever Isaiah was four, he was already you know, setting the bar pretty high for his younger siblings. He was a talker. We were in a restaurant. We were in full-time evangelism at that time, and we were eating in a restaurant in a, in a town where I was preaching. Joy was singing, and and uh, and while we were in the restaurant, uh, we you know kind of made some acquaintance there, so there, and we got into the parking lot. We began to pull out of the parking lot. Now, Joy would go to the newborn, Josiah, have him strapped in his car seat. She would make her way over to Michaela. She was the next to strap her. And then the four-year-old Isaiah was the last one to get strapped in. We never left the parking lot until they were all strapped in. But by the time she was moving toward the, the Isaiah to strap him in, I was slowly rolling through the parking lot. And the parking lot had a pretty steep slope going down to the street. So I stopped to look both ways to make sure everybody was strapped in. And then uh, I, I was going to take off, right? But whenever I hit the brakes, and whenever I say hit the brakes, it wasn't like a lock up the brakes, but whenever I just on that steep of a, of a incline stopped, Isaiah, who was not quite yet in his car seat yet, slid out, and he ended up hitting a little bit of wood trim on our conversion van and scraped his back a little bit. Mom consoled him, put him in, strapped him, and said, okay, we're ready to go, and then we hit the street, okay? Well, anyhow, the next night we pull into the same restaurant because we're still in the same town, small town, not many restaurants, and we walk in, and while we're getting ready to eat, another young lady walks in, and our waitress looks at her and says, oh my gosh, are you okay? And she said, yeah, I'm okay. She said, it's a miracle. Well, it kind of had our attention, and she looked over at us, saw us looking at her, and she said, I had a wreck last night. My car rolled five times, and I walked away. And we said, man, that is a miracle. When suddenly, four-year-old Isaiah, in his voice that carries all the way across this restaurant, said, we were in a wreck yesterday, and all eyes were on the four-year-old voice, okay? He said, yeah, I wasn't in my car seat. My dad slammed on the brakes, and I flew out, and I cut my back. That's his story. I'm going, now, well, wait a second, we were in this parking lot. You know how it's a steep slope. We weren't on the street. We were strapping him in. He slid out, got a scrape on his, you know, so I, the next two weeks, I can't tell you how many times I was following behind him going, we were in a parking lot, you know, it was, you know, everywhere he went, we were in a wreck, and every, I mean, he just loved the attention, right? Well, about two months before that is whenever Josiah was born. He was a newborn, as I said. And, and the, the delivery nurse, her name's Cammie, a dear friend to this day, had helped deliver all three of the babies to that point and actually did it with our other two as well. But Joy and she had gotten so close that after Josiah was born, Joy had the privilege to lead Cammie to Christ. That was an exciting thing. Her husband's name was Bill, and she was really concerned about Bill, and we had connected with him. They were coming over to our home for dinner so we could sit down and share Jesus with Bill. It's an exciting night, right? So Joy sits down with Isaiah and said, Isaiah, listen, you got to stop telling that story, honey. I mean, here's the reason why. We were in a parking lot. If somebody thought we were out on the street and that actually happened, that would be illegal. That'd be breaking the law. Your dad could be in trouble with the police. She's just trying to get, you know, through his little four-year-old mind, right? Doorbell rings about 20 minutes later. Uh, we're walking down the hallway as we hear Isaiah already opening the door. 
And here's what he says. I'd tell you a story about my dad, but I can't because he'd be in trouble with the police. <laughs> I'm going, we were in a parking lot. We didn't have, okay? So I'm telling you, sometimes the tongue can do damage. Bill did come to Christ, by the way, later on, okay? By, by an innocent tongue, when we're even too little to know, it's already a powerful weapon, right? Got another story for you. So Joy and I were in Rio de Janeiro on a mission trip in 1995, and we were there with Houston's First Baptist Church of Houston, Texas, and some missionaries flew in, a couple, uh, uh, some friends of ours, a married couple from Bolivia. They were IMB missionaries to Bolivia. They came to Brazil to help us while we're there on this mission team, and it was a great reunion time. So we're eating with them. We eat a lot, right? And uh, we're sitting there eating, and I said, how's it going in Bolivia? And, and uh, the guy said, I got to tell you a story. It just happened a couple weeks ago. It was hilarious. So yeah, as you would know, in Brazil, they speak Portuguese, and in Bolivia, they speak Spanish. And those languages, I'm told, are quite similar. I'm still working on English, if you can't tell, but, uh, but they're quite similar. And so if you're in, you know, if you're in a Spanish-speaking country and you speak Portuguese, you can definitely more than get by and vice versa. But there are a few words that are pretty significantly and very significantly different, okay? For example, in Portuguese, the word that means embarrassed is the same word for pregnant in Spanish, Okay. Embarrassed in Portuguese and pregnant in Spanish. So there's this missionary from Brazil to Bolivia. Grew up speaking Portuguese. Now she's speaking Spanish, sharing Jesus with people. And she was an introvert. She was great one-on-one. But anytime somebody called her in front of a crowd, she was always embarrassed to be in front of the crowd, right? Well, she would go to this church pretty often on a Sunday night. Several hundred people there, good-sized church. And if the pastor ever spotted her, he would call her to the front and say, give us a report. So she's hiding on the back row, hoping she's not going to be seen because she does not like to be in front of people. But sure enough, the pastor says, oh, we have our missionary from Brazil. She's a missionary here to Bolivia. Come up and give us a report. So she walks up to the platform, and she thinks she's saying, I am very embarrassed. But instead, she says, I am very pregnant. And then she points to the pastor and says, and it's his fault, okay? Yeah, pastor's going, no, 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 no. So words, the tongue is a powerful thing, sometimes by accident, okay? So it can be powerful with innocence. It can be powerful by accident, but here's the problem. By far the majority of the time with me, I know exactly what I'm doing, and it's on purpose. And the tongue is a powerful, powerful, powerful muscle. And how can we really control it? What are some of the things? If it's that strong, how can we? Because, you know, in verse 3, James refers to it. He says, you know, we've got this ability to take a small bit and control a horse that weighs hundreds and hundreds of pounds. And it goes everywhere we want it to go. We've got this ability to take a large ship in the middle of a fierce wind. And with a small rudder, the pilot can cause it to go wherever he wants it to go. But he said the tongue... It's like just a little kindle of fire, yet it burns down an entire forest. We can't control it. How do we do that? So if it's that fierce, and we know it is, how are some things that we can combat the enemy with that so wants to misutilize our words? I mean, in other words, I'm just telling you, there's nothing that probably thrills the enemy more than for a follower of Jesus to blow it, to blow up, to to look ugly to say things that are out of line, whether it's losing the temper, whether it's just a negative attitude, whatever it is, the enemy loves to do that. So how can we combat the enemy? Well, John 10.10, 10, it's not on the screen, but I just want to make reference to that verse. It's one of my, my favorite verses. You all know it well. Jesus says, the thief, say thief. Say thief. 
The thief does not come except to steal, kill, and destroy, but I have come to give life and life more abundantly. It's interesting to me that, that Jesus refers to our enemy, Satan, as a thief. Say thief. Now, I have, to ask, I have to ask the question, why? And we've done a little bit of study on this in some other settings around, around this campus. But I have to always ask, it, it, it intrigues me every time I hear Jesus say, the thief. Say thief. I think there's some reasons why he refers to the enemy as a thief. Here are some of the reasons. And I think these tools will help us combat the enemy, especially when we get to the third one. First of all, we need to be aware that a thief will always rob when we least expect it. When we least expect it. I'm just telling you, I've never heard a story of somebody robbing someone else's house whenever the homeowner was sitting on the front porch cleaning his shotgun with a box of shells sitting on the, on the porch beside him, right? Doesn't happen that way. A good thief is going to investigate, going to look around, going to find out when no one's there, and that's when they are going to rob. They'll look for patterns. They'll look for all that kind of stuff to make sure the place is empty. I believe one of the reasons why that Jesus refers to our enemy as a thief is because he will hit us when we least expect it. It might be a time that you just came off of a mountaintop experience spiritually. It may be a time whenever you feel like, man, God is so incredibly amazing, there's no looking back, and boom, there's an attack. It may be a time when you're in your prayer closet. Have you ever been in deep prayer just really asking God to do something and a wicked, wicked, wicked thought just bolt into your brain? I'm telling you, we have an adversary that is mighty. Now hear me, God is almighty, and we always hear that, right? And it's true, but we cannot underestimate the power of our opponent. Satan is a thief and he'll hit us when we least expect it. But I want you to know also, I, think, I believe the reason why that Jesus refers to Satan as a thief is because he'll also come to steal that which is most precious. That which is most precious. I've never heard a story of a guy going in and robbing a house, making it, you know, getting away clean with like six rolls of toilet paper and the trash liner out of the trash can, okay? He's going to carry out of that place the thing that is most valuable, that is most precious that he can carry out. That's what a thief does. You know what I believe the most precious thing is that we have today? It's relationships. First and foremost, our relationship with Jesus. Good news, he can't steal that. But I'm telling you, he can sure cause us to want to tuck our tail between our legs and think that God's mad at us and lay low for a while whenever we sin. But he can't steal that relationship. And again, whenever we do lay low thinking God's ticked off, it's wrong thinking because God's still there to love us and forgive us immediately. But that's what the enemy wants us to think. But he's also busy, the enemy is, of stealing relationships between husbands and wives. Relationships between parents and children, grandparents and grandchildren, biological brothers and sisters, best friends that grew up together. He is busy about stealing relationships. And I'm convinced one of the number one tools that the enemy wants to use is our tongue. Because I'm telling you, words cut, words hurt. And even though we may have people in our life that come full circle and forgive us, that will never be forgotten. You may say, well, look, if you forgive it, it should be forgotten. Well, here's the problem. We're human beings. The Bible says that God takes our sins, puts them as far away from us as the east is from the west, buries them in the deepest sea, remembers them no more. But we don't have the ability to forget. We've got this great little VCR in our brain, and for anybody under the age of 20, I'll, I'll describe what a VCR is afterwards. And Satan loves nothing more than to push rewind and play and rewind and play and rewind and play over and over and over over and over. We may forgive truly because of God's strength, but you never forget. And words hurt. It really matters. So he's out, Satan, to steal that which is most precious. That's one of the reasons why I'm convinced that Jesus refers to him. Out of all the things he could have called him, he refers to him in this moment as a thief. Here's another reason why, and this is the main thing that I want us to hear from this segment of the message. A thief will always come in through the easiest point of entry. 
Now think about that for a moment. If, if, if you were going to rob someone's home and the front door was a solid metal door with 10 deadbolt locks and the back door is one of those little flimsy screen doors with a little hook and ring, which door would you go through? You would go through the screen door because it's the easiest point of entry. And here's what we need to understand. Every one of us have an easiest point of entry. Every one of us in this room have at least one, two, or three weaknesses in our life. I have a weakness in my life that I'm keenly aware of, and I'm telling you, if I ever let it get out of control, I'm put away on a shelf. It's over. And every one of us. You ever notice that Satan usually is not kicking our tail in 15, 16 different areas simultaneously? It's usually the same one, two, or three areas over and over and over and over. So everyone in this room, beginning with me, we need to silently right now, don't even write it on your notes if you're taking notes because it's too personal. You need to ask yourself and answer this question. What is the greatest weakness of my life? What are those one, two, or three areas of my life that I know I'm really weak in? Because here's the deal. Three beings know your weakness. God knows your weakness, and I'm thankful for that. I really am. You know your weakness. I know mine. But you better believe your enemy, my enemy, knows our weakness. He's not stupid. Satan is not going to dangle bait in front of you that's not appealing. And it's those same areas that he continues to hit us with over and over and over and over. So what do we do to combat him? Well, here's what we do. And I'm telling you, it's key. On a daily basis, come before God and do this. God, you know my weakness. I know my weakness. The enemy knows my weakness. And I'm asking you right now, to close that door in my life and put a God lock on it for this day. Go to God. Stay on your knees before him. Now, there are days that I start this way and I have victory all day. But there are days that I start this way just as sincere and I'm praying this again at 9.33 and again at 11.17 and again at 11.27 and again, you know what? I'm just telling you, for some reason still he hits. So what else do we do? The other thing that God allows us to have is Scripture. You remember what happened. The biblical example of us memorizing Scripture is Jesus himself whenever he had been in the wilderness for 40 days and 40 nights. He was baptized. He was in the wilderness 40 days and 40 nights. He had not eaten, and Satan comes and tempts him with three things, right? Now, the Bible says in the book of James, we talked about it earlier in this series, that God cannot tempt, nor can he be tempted. Understand, Jesus was 100% God, yet 100% what? Man. So it was not the deity of Christ being tempted. It was the humanity of Christ being tempted. This is not a contradiction in God's word. Jesus had not eaten for 40 days, and humanistically, the the, the human, you know, 100% God, 100% man, he was starving to death. And what was the first thing that the enemy tried to tempt him with? Food. Why don't you turn these stones into bread? I believe he was trying to enter in what he thought was going to be the easiest point of entry. And what did Jesus use to combat the enemy? Scripture. He quoted Scripture. So what's that application for us today? We need to identify our weakness. What is the weakest area of your life? One, two, three areas? And we need to find Scripture that's case-specific to our individual weaknesses and commit those to memory. And trust me, those scriptures are in there. Whatever your weakness is, they're there. Commit those to memory. Because if there's one thing, by example, the way Jesus modeled it for us, that will cause Satan to tuck his forked tail between his legs and run, it is scripture. 
and we have the ammunition to quote scripture when we're tempted and he will flee from us. He is a worthy opponent and the only thing that we can use is the word of the Almighty. And we need to memorize that and, and commit it to memory. Now there's still one problem. If you pray every day, God, close this door in my life. If you commit those scriptures to memory and then you're tempted... We still have to choose at that moment to step up to the plate and use the ammunition. It's still a battle. You see, there are sins in our lives that we are affectionate toward. The Bible calls them sinful affections. There are sins in our life that we have a, a draw, our life that we have a draw toward, even a love toward in some ways. And what happens is this: we're tempted, and we know if we give in momentarily, it's going to feel good. And we know if we give in that we can even use the old excuse we use all the time, I'll never do it again. This will be the last time. If we don't use the scripture, it won't help. We have to choose at the moment of the temptation to step up to the plate and quote the scripture to be able to overcome this. It's still a battle. But we've got the ammunition. And Jesus refers to Satan as a thief so we can understand how to combat him because there's nothing that he enjoys more than watching a follower of Jesus Christ, especially if you're outspoken, blow it whenever you're speaking to someone out of anger, out of lust, whatever it may be. He wants us to absolutely mess up with this powerful, powerful thing called the tongue. Powerful thing. There's another couple of verses that I want to look at and two words that we want to address before we close today. And they come out of verses 9 and 10. Listen to what it says in verses 9 and 10. With the tongue we bless our God and Father, and with it we curse men who have been, uh, who have been made in the, in the similitude of God. Verse 10, out of the same mouth proceed blessing and cursing. My brethren, these things ought not to be so. Out of the same mouth proceeds cursing and blessing. Say cursing. Say blessing. Say cursing. Say blessing. Same mouth. It's crazy. Out of the same mouth comes cursing and blessing. Sometimes they can almost be seconds apart. So I want us to look at a couple things. I want to talk about cursing first. And again, how can we see it coming? We talked about how to combat it. How can we see it coming? And then we're going to talk about blessing as we, as we close. But cursing, first of all, how can we see it coming so maybe we can be, have, at least have our guard up all the more, be on our knees all the more? Well, back to the three examples that, that James gives us, that God through James gives us concerning how powerful the tongue is. In verse 3, he says, indeed we, indeed, we put bits in horses' mouths that they may obey us and that we can turn their whole body. Now, whenever I think about that, I can tell you this. I was raised on a farm south of Sullivan. We had cattle and we, had, we put up hay. That was it. We weren't, you know... In the truest sense of farmers, we weren't farmers. We weren't croppers, or we didn't, you know, do a lot of things that, that the true uh, farmer really does, in my book at least. But I can tell you that my father-in-law is a horseman. He's been around horses all his life. He's made a, a lot of his income has come through breaking horses. He's been around. He's got a very, very unique way of doing it. He didn't beat them into submission. He has a way of working with that animal. I'll promise you, he never put a bit in a green horse and jumped on his back bareback. It wouldn't have worked. Before that bit really worked where you could control the body and lead it wherever you wanted to go, there was a long process of seasoning. There was a process of that horse surrendering to its master. So I believe that one of the principles in, in God through James telling us, using the analogy of a horse with a bit, is this. If you've been a believer for a handful of months, you might have a little more understanding of God whenever you mess up. 
If you've been a believer for 20 years and you're still talking like you did whenever you were a six-month-old baby, there's something wrong. I've been a Christian now for 33 years. I'm telling you, if I'm acting today like I did 10 years ago or 15 years ago or 30 years ago, there's something wrong. We should be growing as we continue to be surrendered because if you really want to see a horse be controlled by that bit where it'll do any move you want it to move, it's got to be one that is fully surrendered to its master. So I do believe if you're a new believer and you blow it, man, again, don't beat yourself up completely and go into some kind of deep dive of going, man, God must be ticked off regardless of how long you've been a believer. But I believe there's a little more understanding with those who are new believers as opposed to those who have been believers for quite some time. And we need to continue to surrender this to the Lord. The second example that he uses is a ship in the rudder. Listen to what he says in verse, in verse 4. Look also at ships, although they are large and driven by fierce winds. Say fierce. Say winds. They are turned by a very small rudder wherever the pilot desires. But I notice that he throws in there fierce winds. I will promise you if, a, if a, a captain, if you would, of a ship, a pilot of a ship, was using that small rudder on a calm sea, it would be much easier than when the fierce winds come. And another way that I believe we can understand to raise our guard, to really have our guard up, be on our knees more often, be in the word memorizing more often, is when we're in the middle of a storm of our life. When storms come, those rudders did not work near as effectively. And I'll promise you, whenever you walk into a stormy season, you're going to have a lot more temptation to lose it with the tongue. And what we need to do is to make sure we continue to be on our knees before a holy God. We need to be in his word. Can't stress that enough. But I don't want to just talk about long season storms. Sometimes you're in a storm for a year or two years. I mean, difficult days that just, it takes a long time to heal and maybe never will fully heal in some ways. But what about those quick storms that just erupt? What about the time that temper really erupts? I was raising a family that, that we really didn't have a temper problem or anger problem. It was really more of a rage problem, to be honest with you. Had a great family in many ways, but I'm telling you, we, were, we put the fun in dysfunctional. And I, I can tell you that, that I, I have always had a bad temper. I cannot say, I don't get a pass with that. I can't say, well, hey, that's just the way I'm wired. Uh-uh. The Bible says we're new creatures. We're a new creation. The Bible says when we surrender the Holy Spirit that we're to come under his control. Do I still blow it? Yeah, I do. But when I do, I'm in sin. When I do, I, there's not one ounce of Jesus in that. We have no right to think we're wired a certain way, so we are excused to be able to do a certain thing or say a certain thing. For those in this room that are wired that way, that you have a quick temper, all the more be on your knees because it's got to be an act of the Holy Spirit, but he can do it. Again, don't hear me up here with my little chest phone out saying I pull this off all the time. I still mess up, but when I do, I am, I am without excuse we can't say, I've just always talked that way. We can't say, well, it's in my DNA because I was raised that way. Uh, listen, there's a very strong thing here to say. When storms come, and especially those abrupt ones that are quick, all the more reason why we need to say, see it coming, understand. If you're getting ready to walk into a situation you feel like could be a little explosive, be ready because the enemy wants to use the strongest muscle in your body to do harm, and it will really do harm. Okay, the third analogy he uses is how our tongue, even though these things can be controlled, our tongue is still like a little ember that will light a whole forest on fire. I think of one person that's tempted to strike a match in the forest of California and watch tens of thousands of acres burn. We watch that take place uh, oftentimes on the news. 
uh, sometimes we're tempted to do wrong. We need to see it coming. But the other thing about the fire portion of the analogy, a lot of times those fires that burn tens of thousands of acres, they're started by a campfire. Nobody meant for it to take off. But somewhere along the line, somebody didn't tend to it the way it should have been tended. Someone didn't have the responsibility they should have had. Somebody got lax. They let their guard down. They left while there were still some coals and embers burning. And next thing you know, there's thousands and thousands and thousands of acres being, being burned and homes being evacuated. And here's what that tells me. Again, I can't stress it enough. And t- Listen, so easy for me to get up and say this stuff. Living it is a different thing. We can't let our guard down. Whenever we get lax in an area of our life, whenever we begin to compromise or take God for granted, whenever we begin to think we're so busy that we're missing time in this word, we're missing time on the knees of our heart before our holy God, fires are going to break loose. We're being lax. We're not tending to things the way they need to be tended. And I'm telling you, the tongue will run away with itself. Will run away with itself. So there's cursing. Say cursing. But then there's blessing. Say blessing. I want to close by talking about blessing. I was raised really in a great family. I know I just said we put the fun in dysfunctional. And there, there were some things uh, there that, you know, were interesting. But I want to tell you, I never doubted my mom or dad's love for me. Had a great dad. Taught me a work ethic. Uh, he, was a tra- he was my hero. Had a great mom. Just passed away three years ago. And loved her to no end. They weren't so hot together. Okay, They divorced whenever I was an early teenager. But, uh, but I never doubted their love for me. I never doubted that they, either one of them would have given their life for me. Uh, but I can tell you this. We never said the words. My mom said I love you. But my dad and I, I heard him say it twice that he loved me in my life. The first time... I actually had gotten in trouble with the law. I had lied. Uh, he went to my defense, believe in me, my dad did. And then I got caught in the lie. And my dad, in the middle of our, our living room, said, Son, I love you, but if you're going to keep acting this way, you're gone. You can leave. He didn't actually kick me out of the house, but I, I was full of pride. 19 years old, thought I had the world by the tail, and I left. A few months later, I moved back in after he was diagnosed with cancer. But to tell you the truth, it wasn't just to take care of him. I was going broke faster than you know how to go broke. I was, my life story was the story of the poor farm boy that started out with nothing at all and from there went downhill, okay? So I moved back in with my dad. We, we made amends and everything was fine. And, and I really had a great, great, great relationship the last 11 years and four days of his, or 11 months and four days of his life as this dreaded disease cancer took him out. But I'll never forget, he would go every three weeks to Barnes Hospital. I don't think it was Barnes Jewish yet. Barnes Hospital in St. Louis, and he'd have three days of chemotherapy. And I'd always think, today, before my dad leaves the farm, I'm going to tell him I love him. Because at least if the cancer expands, he gets bad news, he's going to know that I told him I loved him. And, And I'm telling you, it was so awkward, I never said it. One time he was even getting in the truck to leave and I ran around the house to catch him and I called his name. I said, Dad, and he said, yeah. And I, I just made something up. You sure you got everything? I just couldn't get it out. It was so awkward. Finally, I take him to Barnes Hospital a few months later. He's very sick. I know that the end's really close. It's about 1 o'clock in the morning by the time we get him into his hospital room. 
I'm bound and determined that I'm going to say it. I left his room without saying it. I walked down the hallway and I started to push that, the button on the elevator. And I thought, if he, if he dies tonight, you'll never forgive yourself. And I turned around and I walked down the longest hallway of my life. And I walked back in his room. He was sitting up on the side of his bed. He said, hey, son, I thought you had gone. I said, well, I had, but I just need to come back and tell you something. I need to tell you that I love you. And he said, hey, I love you too. That goes for all you kids. You tell them for me, will you? I said, yeah, I will. And I don't mind telling you that I didn't tear up as I left that room. I bawled all the way back through Eureka on the way back to the farm south of Sullivan. I was 21 years old whenever he died. I'm 57 today. And that blessing still carries through my life. It wasn't because I was a hero and went back and said, I love you. It's because whenever you do things that God tells you to do, it's, it's blessing. And to hear him say those words back, I knew he loved me. I'm telling you around our house, I mean, it was the weirdest thing. It took quite a while because, you know, we were in a scenario where I'd never said it to my mom. One time I was leaving her house. I stopped by before work real early one morning, and I was leaving her house, and she said, I love you, son. And my mind was so focused on where I was headed, I just hit automatic pilot and said, I love you too. And I literally stopped and almost turned around and said, well, I didn't mean to say that because it just felt so awkward. And I thought, you can't turn around and tell your mom you didn't mean to say that. I mean, what she saw was, I love you, son. I love you too. And I stop, and then I start walking again. See, I could, tell it, I could say it to a girl that was a girlfriend, didn't mean anything, but I could say it. But I couldn't say it to the people that mattered. But after I came to Christ, it was awkward. I started saying it to my mama. For decades before she died, I could go up and give her a big hug and kiss her on the cheek and tell her I love her. My family, my wife, and our kids, man, they'll never have an issue of saying I love you. Listen, the bottom line is this. Some things seem awkward to say. But if we obey God and we keep saying it, God will give us the freedom to enjoy it. So here's where we close today. What's it going to be? Is it going to be cursing or is it going to be blessing? You see, I, I want you to know that there are people around you today and around me that need a great word of affirmation. They need somebody to walk up and encourage them. They need somebody to notice them. They need somebody to say, I saw what you did, and you're amazing. They need somebody to go to them and say, I love you. And it might be somebody in your family. And you're not broken, and you're not weird, and you're not strange if you can't say it. My dad and I, we had a great relationship, but I never hugged him once in my life. Whenever I ran into my dad as an 18, 17, whatever-year-old son, and I would see him in town, happen to run into him with MFA or whatever, I'd shake his hand. I shook my dad's hand many times. My kids looked at it and say, what? But I never hugged him. It was just a different family. But I'm telling you, there are people around you that even today need you to go to them and say, you need to know this. I love you. I feel sorry for my wife and kids because they, uh, they're the sounding board every time I'm getting ready to share, no matter where it is that I'm going. And I was going through this with Michaela, and she said, Dad, uh, have you considered... Uh, Proverbs 18.21 and I looked at it and that's where we're closing today because of my sweet little daughter saying Proverbs 18.21 but here's where I want to close here's what it says in Proverbs 18.21 death and life are in the power of the tongue say death 
Say life. Say death. Say life. Death and life are in the power of the tongue. And those who love it will eat its fruit. If you love death, if that's what your tongue spills out, you'll eat its fruit. If you love life and your tongue spills out affirmation, encouragement, love, you'll eat its fruit. Well, we close here. That's the choice. We'll never be perfect. It won't happen. God tells us through James. But we don't get a pass. We don't get a bye to the next round. We can't use the excuse of that's just the way I'm wired. That's who I am. We're a new creature. Satan wants to use your tongue in a negative way, especially in front of lost people, but even to bring division with other Christians. And it's a brutal thing. Death or life. But last thing, maybe you're here this morning and you're saying, Bob, I'll be honest with you. I'm not 100% sure if I died tonight, I'd spend eternity in heaven. This message has been toward the, the Christian, those that already know that they're going to heaven, not because we're so good, because Jesus was so good for us 2,019 years ago. We should all go to hell. But he, he provides a way. So this message has been to the Christian, the book of James is written to the Christian. But I want to tell you the most powerful thing you can ever do with your heart that involves your tongue. Embrace Jesus. Confess him as Lord. And this morning, if you're here saying, I'm not 100% sure if I died tonight, I'd go to heaven. Get this. You can know before you leave this place. You can know today. Because the word of God tells us how. And in a moment, we're going to stand and sing. And we're going to have an invitation. And David and his crew are coming right now. And whenever we stand to sing, if you're here saying, I don't know. I don't know that I'm going to heaven whenever I die. I want to encourage you to do something that will take some guts. But this whole Jesus thing is not for, not, not for pacifist sissies, I'll just tell you. I'm going to ask you to make your way here to the front and just sit on one of these pews. You don't have to stand. You can just sit immediately on one of these pews. Someone will approach you in just a few minutes' time from God's word, share with you how you can know you have his forgiveness in your life, how you can know through surrendering to him that you have a home in heaven, how you can know that. For others in this room, you say, I'm already a believer. I've already done that. You may want to come to an old-fashioned altar this morning. I still think there's something special about old-fashioned altars. And bow a knee before that holy God that says, I'm not going to give up on you. I'm not going to let you go. Roz, can you or someone come and sit with these two young ladies right here? They've already come to sit up here. We're proud of you girls. And I think they're coming probably because they want to know that they've know Jesus, okay? And if there's anyone else that want to come and help with that as well, I just happen to see uh, her in the back of the room there. So I know many of you could do that effectively. So, But listen, maybe we need to come to the old-fashioned altar and just cry out to God and say, God, I want to make sure that I'm walking with you in the area of my speech, in the area of how I treat others. This isn't just talking about letting a cuss word slip. This is talking about how we respond to brothers and sisters, how we respond to the lost it's a big deal. It's a big deal. Let's all stand to our feet. If you need to come, you come. If you can do business where you are in that pew, you do that. If others need to come and sit on the front pew to find out, how do I know that I'm going to heaven? You come as well. As David sings, you come.